idea for all this really came from a dream? Yes, it did. Good evening and welcome to Nox Mente. Tonight's guest is Chuan Ku. Chuan interviews occult people on her video series Witches and Wine and writes about her journey in magic for Pathos Pagan. She was a speaker at the 2019 Magical Women Conference in London, and she's here with us tonight live. Chuan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, I, I am quite excited to have you here, Juwan. Thank you for joining us. Yes. I'm excited to talk to you both. So I just want to let it out right away. Juwan came into my, I already told you on this, through Alkistus of uh, Scarlet Imprint, which is my favorite press in the world. Anyone that knows me knows this. And uh, I've been thrilled about your YouTube channel ever oh, since. Thank you. Went through the backlog. You have a good time. I, I love the, the little bits of primping that happen. <laughs> you do sometimes. The, the zhuzhing in the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> Let's zhuzh the hair. It's, it's a magic ritual that we do to get us in the mindset of an interview. So. Oh, it's so good. It, it just makes me smile. It's so good. The glam. You definitely are a witch that brings the glam. This is for sure. And I love Thank to you. see it. Thank you. It's essential, as you know. It is. And also, I have this theory, and it's starting to become this thing that I'm experimenting with to make sure that it holds water, which is that glamour magic, not only is it one of the most accessible uh, types of magic that anybody can do, you don't need expensive equipment, you don't need to have any sort of like high entry fee, like read a million gazillion grimoires. Um, but that there is like faux glamour, which is the glamour that Madison Avenue tries to sell you. And then there's the authentic sort of glamour that I try to talk about. Um, I'm trying to basically define what glamour magic is, but in a way that's a more healthy uh, sort of discussion about what it is instead of, oh, glamour is tricking people. Oh, it's manipulative. Oh, it's only about beauty. You know, I'm trying to move it to glamour 2.0. Rather than old. Have you, have you by any chance seen the rebooted Charmed that just came out? I think it was on CW last year, but it's on Netflix right now. Mm, no, I haven't. The, one of the first five episodes deals with glamour and its consequences. Yeah. <laughs> Is it that they put a spell to sort of like change completely the way a person looks and then that A person them? or a thing, yeah. Yeah. I think that's what most people think of when they think of glamour magic. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's maybe glamour 1.0. It's, it's vampire talk. glamour. Yeah, there's different types of glamour. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are different types of glamour. Um, some people are extremely auditorily. I don't know if that's a word. Um, but they have amazingly glamorous sort of like auditory presence. Others are more visual. Some people just start going in there with the vibe. There's so many different types of glamour. And I've noticed when I get into discussions about glamour magic, so many people are talking about a completely different thing than I am. So when I was at the uh, Magical Women Conference that was just held in London on June 1st, one of the things that I tried to talk about was we need to find sort of a common vocabulary about glamour magic so that we're actually talking about the same 
I agree. I've been pushing this concept for 35 years. It has been something that, and there was a lot of kickback in the 80s toward, you say glam and immediately right. like, the witch community thought, <laughs> They uh, they immediately were thinking, oh, makeup and uh, smoke and mirrors, like of the Hollywood right. sort. And it's like, oh man, how, how do I how do I approach this? And but I was speaking to at that time a lot of that kind of hedge witch, earth uh, earth pagan uh, type that were, and many of them employed glam magic, the glamour, and had no idea that they actually were. It just wasn't in that. Passive. Exactly. I think you bring up a very important point, which is one of the main powers of glamour magic. There is a contextualness about it. Um, there's a flexibility about it. And I think it's because it is truly based upon the individual and them reacting to the environment and the environment, therefore, reacting back to the person. And I think a lot of magic and I think a lot of people drawn to magic, they want things to be super controlled. They want to be sort of the center of the circle. They want to control the magic. Versus glamour magic, it's so much of a give and take. There's this nice feminine energy about it where it's not hierarchical. It's not based on control or structure. Um, but at the same time, because it requires sort of a thinking on your feet in a lot of ways, um, it's a little bit more difficult to navigate, to describe, and to practice in some ways. Yeah, I hear you. It's I applaud this that you're that you're pushing this, uh, getting a common vocabulary, very important, and yeah. also parsing out these details. It's just another thing in the tool chest that we have accessible to us. It's the do you did you watch the series Dune or read the books with the Bene Gesserit order? Mm, maybe when maybe many years ago but i don't remember any of it what, what's it about the so just just to get just on the glamour section the bene Gesserit were an order of weirding witches w y and they had a they were very when they were younger they're all you know would work their physical glam and and then they start working on the internal arts and eventually when you become a reverend mother and you, you've lost all your hair there's a whole process there's a transmutation that happens and they they appear very kind of um witchy and nun-like at the same time but they have a weirding voice and the voice it works on a psychological level it gets in into the head in a psycho uh in a mm, clear audience yes in a clear audience type way and it's it's a it's literally the basis for glamour for me now it, it is yeah. it's worth checking out that series is great da you know david lynch did it it's got mm -hmm. a great cast it's fantastic unlike i think uh the reboot of charmed i think is that it I, oh I won't it's horrible that. i'm not recommending it in any capacity <laughs> Jerry, yeah. okay it's the most disgusting whatever i don't want to get into it but it's horrible but, oh, but... they do have a glamour episode which uh, but admit it, Jerry, you watched it and you kind of enjoyed it. Of course he did. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. I really don't like the characters. And uh, I'm looking at it from a perspective. I'm really just watching it to see how 
occult things are being portrayed by different networks because there's this is kind of OCD, but there's different types of agendas in different mm. networks on, in different shows. <laughs> Indeed, and this you know this all plays into the realm of dreams and all of that. So give us Absolutely. an idea of where of young you. I've got these little dogs. Oh, I know. I love little dogs. Yeah, they're my little familiars. <laughs> I actually have black wolves too. It, just for contrast. Uh, anyway, so young Juwan, like the earliest memories you have in your life of things that stick out, pop culture, you know, uh, possibly cartoons, songs, all of that stuff that kind of, when you look back, you remember. Ooh. Well, some of the things that pop into my mind immediately are Boy George. Um, I was part of that MTV generation when MTV was actually playing music videos. I love him. Yeah. And I remember seeing Boy George as a revelation. Um, I was like, oh, it's a living doll. And um, also glam rock, you know, like MTV really influenced me because I was watching it 24-7 when I was younger. Um, so I was like really into like all the hair bands. And when you're like a young kid, you don't understand concepts like gender or what's you know, acceptable for a dude to do. I just thought that they looked amazing and they looked empowered um, women and men during that time. So definitely MTV. Also, I'm remembering uh, like Transformers. Um, and just, I remember just loving Optimus Prime. I've always had a thing for men who cover like their mouths and their noses, almost like a surgical mask. So I remember thinking that Optimus Prime, like I was going to marry him when I was older, and I was like, yes. Um, so I was into not only that, but also like Thundercats too, which is, you know, so glam, hello. Um, so that, and also I think that just little strains of, you know, like music um, that wasn't on MTV necessarily, but like punk music that was just being played randomly reggae music being played randomly, and also um, Anne of Green Gables, Sweet Valley High. Those two books were, you know, Sweet Valley High is like total, like, I love it. It's like saccharine. It's just such trash, but that's so me. And then Anne of Green Gables, she and I share the same birthday. So I was like totally into her. So I've read the entire series. Anne of Green Gables is more than just one book that I mean, it's the book, but the Anne series, like there's like eight different books and it's like her eventually having children. And so I read the entire series. Um, yes, yeah, so I would say those were the main influences on me up until the age of like, okay. This is all good stuff. What was your, uh, sorry, I just took a drink what, of water. Uh, what was your relationship with, nature in the natural world around you none absolutely none <laughs> I, I, I I was, yeah i was a complete like city i mean i grew up in the suburbs but i remember just not being very interested in nature people would be like oh isn't that a pretty flower isn't that a nice tree and i just like yeah i was more interested in the artificial you know i was much more interested in how to craft reality using artificial things um, and to me, that's also what glamour is. Glamour is not what you were born with. It's not anything necessarily, quote unquote, natural, you know, 
the, the sort of like a putting what's natural on a pedestal, I find to be a little bit laughable because when you take what is natural and then you craft something on top of it, which is by definition artificial, I think that to me shows, I don't know, it just shows a little bit more of not only just effort and who you actually are, but it also shows agency. And to me, I was more interested in my agency rather than whatever is out there acting upon me, even as a little kid. I think this is very important. And I, I love that. I love this. I think you're the first person who said out flat out no, which really gave me a cackle. Uh, but I mean, even in the Satanic Bible, Anton LaVey talks about artifice and he talks about in interviews, it's a very important aspect uh, in creating. And also, I mean, you just you just said everything I could say about it really well. So I think that's significant. With that said, where did you grow up? Are you a California girl? No, I actually grew up outside of Washington, D.C. So I've lived on the East Coast all of my life. Um, yeah, I was in the suburbs of D.C. And then later, you know, after school, I moved to New York City. And then I lived in Tokyo, Seoul, Korea, um, just like the big cities of the world. Um, but, you know, like, no matter where I was at, I was surrounded by beautiful nature. I mean, New York City, despite the fact it being one of the biggest metropolises in the world, it has Central Park, it has Prospect Park in Brooklyn. It has nature. It has amazing nature. And there's an interview that I did with Cindy Brannon of um, Keeping Her Keys, amazing blog on Papios Pagan. Um, that video is going to come out um, probably end of this week. And we were talking about how Central Park, like she went to Central Park and was like, oh my God, the amount of bounty of nature there, the trees, the plants, the, the weeds, it's incredible. Like she was in heaven and she's like really into plant work. Myself? I don't like getting my fingers dirty. I was just like, I don't want to put my hand in dirt. I don't want to go out into nature. I really don't care about any of that stuff. Now that I'm older, I can appreciate nature more, but I don't think I have the same bond with nature that a lot of other witches or especially pagan people do. I love that you bring Central Park into this mm -hmm. chat because I was just uh, a friend of ours who was on the show, an amazing artist, JJ of Ronde Blanc, uh, was posting pictures of garnets that she found in Central Park, you know, from the ground. And mm -hmm. I, I inquired, and I guess they're everywhere, and Central Park's sitting on top of all of these amazing gems and that, that they yeah. surface. And so, you know, just pondering that alone is, is fodder, you know, of, of greatness. Just that you can go find garnets in Central yeah. Park is so great. It is totally. huge. And people who haven't been there, I don't know that you can, eat, like most places, conceptualize until you've experienced it. It's huge. 100%. And, you know, um, I did an interview with um, Sabrina Scott, and she wrote Witch Body. And that interview is going to come up soon on my channel. And um, we were talking about basically like um, this, again, speaking of natural versus artifice and how, you know, nature, this unspoiled mother nature thing is so venerated and put upon this pedestal. Whereas so many people live in urban areas. How can a witch practice magic in urban areas without in a way being judged like, oh, you know, like the city? No, you must go out into the mountains. 
you must go to Mount Shasta or whatever, you know, you need to go to the mouth of this river. It's sort of like, do you have to? I don't know. And for somebody like me who relates more to the concrete jungle than the actual jungle, you know, my magic will automatically do much better in the environment that I feel most comfortable in. That's a very important point. And I think it is one that more people need to ponder. First of all, we're all connected in some way. Right. And uh, this, I'm, I'm also, I'm very tired of how judgy people can get with the rules and parameters that can be thrown on other people's experience, especially in things like the craft and, and whatever, anything. It, it, we should just live and experience our lives, we all have access to contacting the otherness, the magic that exists. And that's why dreams are, are such a, a focus for us here is everyone closes their eyes at some point and goes to sleep, even daydreaming. So we all have access no matter where you are, what you're doing, whether you remember them or not, that's on you and you're, ex you're exercising the muscle. Hmm. Well, with that said, tell us about your early experience with dreaming and uh, how, how did you experience dreams? Do you have dreams from your early childhood that, kind of, that have stuck out at all? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why I was really looking forward to coming on this show is that for so much of my life, I've felt as though when I go to sleep, I don't actually dream, but instead I go to a dream world. So basically, there's a city, this dream city. And the thing is, is that I've visited the city so many times that like, I know how to get to the airport. I know how, you know, like the mall, I've been to the mall. There's a mall in this dream city. Um, there's certain neighborhoods that I know that I can go through. And the thing is, is that for many years, I thought this was just, you know, like me having a really active imagination. But then also me thinking, how is it that I, you know, I go to the dream city and it's not like I remember every part of it, but then I'm just like, wait a second, the small, yeah, there was a store and then I have to go, you know, like downstairs in the escalator to get to that store. It's not completely like the reality that we're living in in the waking world, but it feels similar enough so that I can navigate myself around the city. And I first came to this city when I was a preteen. And I was having a lot of dreams about demons. And I'm talking about the stereotypical like demons that are out to scare you and haunt you. And I remember like I was having these intense dreams where I would open like a wall. And when I would open a door in a wall, I'd see little gremlin demons like working, you know, on these like almost like clock-like gears. And I'd just be like, oh, well, that's creepy. And then I just like shut the door. And then one day. I remember this so clearly. There was this woman and she looked kind of like Lily from that movie Legend who was played by uh, Mia Sarah, I think that's her last name. It's that movie with Tom Cruise and Tim Curry played like Darkness. Who's yeah, like, it's Mia know? Sarah. Yeah, Mia Sarah. So she looked kind of like Mia Sarah. She was like wearing the white dress, but she was wearing like a brown cloak on top of it. And she just looked at me and it was like a vanilla sky, that other Tom Cruise movie moment where it's like in the end of the movie where Tom Cruise, he's calling for tech support. And it was similar, like this beautiful lady, she turns to me and she goes, you know, you control 
the demon. You control your dream. And I woke up and then I was just like, oh, that's great. I do. And then since then, like, uh, I haven't really had dreams about demons or similar dreams about demons since. And again, it's that sort of like, I think that she's sort of my spirit guide. Well, I know she is. Um, but I think that she was basically telling me that there's no boundary, you know, like she was trying to get me to get over this idea of like duality, waking world, dreaming world, you know, like material world, spiritual world, East, West, you know, female, male, whatever. And I think she was just kind of reminding me that no matter where you are, you have agency. Yeah. Wow. And wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) (laughs) that is significant i love it what so with the dream architecture going Mm -hmm. on here this early and so i have two parts here the architecture is a big deal to me when i i'm looking at and listening to and contemplating the whole idea of of that state of being the dream Mm -hmm. state so I'm going to get back to that after I get to this, which is on the demons part that you said, did you have before, prior to this, did you have anything that was fearful? You know how we can have fear of, as a child, uh, something possibly under the bed or in the closet? Yeah. I mean, to this day, I can't go into a dark room. Like I'm deathly afraid of the dark. Like one way to, I think, um, if somebody wants to kidnap me and torture me is they don't have to break my legs. They just have to stick me in a dark bathroom, you know, and lock the door like oh, a bathroom. God. Yeah. With a mirror. <laughs> and it's sort of like, I will freak out. You know, but this reminds me of like that movie, The Sixth Sense, where, um, you know, Haley Osment Smith, his character is put inside this like attic, like by these bullies. And they're just like, ah, how are we going to scare him? And when he's there, he's actually attacked by spirits. And I've never been attacked by a spirit. I've never had bruises on my body or anything like that, that or not, you know, explained away. But I have this fear of being in the dark and having unexplained things that go bump in the night, like come at me. So I'm extremely afraid of the dark, like terrified, absolutely terrified. And clowns. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and a side of clowns. Yeah. I, I but have... if it's a, in the dark and in clown makeup, you really couldn't tell. Um, I have a the feeling energy. that I could, I could feel it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's an actual um, phobia of clowns. It's called crophobia. C o u l p r o p h o b i a. And I have it. Like I'm literally like scared. Like I'm just. I will literally die if a clown comes up behind me and goes boo. Demons. I don't give a shit about <laughs> clowns. I'm running the fuck out of there. I love it. Clowns, no, no, ma'am, no sir. No sir. I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You know, there's that old, uh, that old form of ritual, the necromantium, where you sit in, in a complete dark space. It was mostly played with like the sibyls and the pythias of ancient Greek greece and rome and the have a reflecting surface of you know usually a pool of water and two candles well possibly um in some of the stuff i read that there was even no light it was just the fact that something could reflect your 
your image. Like a scry, like a scrying mirror. Or it's totally something to scry in, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it didn't need, there was, part of it was that there was no light source. So, mm. so there's something there. And uh, I've done this and it's alarming. I'll tell you that. <laughs> like it, it can come through. <laughs> Oof, I don't think I'm brave enough to do that. I think, <laughs> I, think I need my demons to be in my dreams rather than me to, yeah. Uh, so, okay. So this, this is the early, this is early Juwan. And so preteen is when you got into and started experiencing this architecture in the dream world. Right. And where you're giving that the whole city. And I too have this. And I've always find it interesting. Many people do not. So, and this is still what you access, correct? I don't dream about it every night, but I will definitely go back. And, you know, like I would say within the past year, I've had a couple of dreams about it. And, you know, I missed a flight. You know, I was just like, oh, I'm going to be missed for my flight. I'm going to be late for my flight. Um, so, and there's a train station, it's like a subway system that's there that is horrible, you know, like it's just so unreliable. Um, there's an elevator system that goes between buildings. It's like something out of Inception. Um, Do you have a, a pad or a house or something, a flat? That, I mean, I, I live in an apartment. In, well, I, in I mean, world, I think. I yeah. Think. Yeah, for me, I, there's a space I inhabit and I go back. I, so for me, it's the same thing. It's not all, every time I dream I'm in that city kind of scape, but I know it, it pops up and is very familiar. Even though things all change, it's still like, oh, okay, that's that place. And this is, you know, this is where I'm inhabiting and all this. It, it kind of shifts like Inception. Right. Uh, for me, though, what's interesting about my dream city is that you know, the air is actually a feeling. So there's this air of melancholy and uh, a slight sadness, a tinge of this like sadness. You know, it's almost like a bittersweet, nostalgic melancholy. It, and the thing is, this is a modern city. And yet there's this feeling that um, there's been times in my life when I was very young, I've had this similar feeling, which is when I was looking at this it was like a terrarium and it, and it was like a little hut inside an aquarium and, you know, a light could come on and off and it was like a Korean style hut. And, you know, when I looked at it, I would feel, I don't know, I would just feel kind of like I missed somebody or something, like there was something missing. Um, and I would have the same feeling when I would go to the city, no matter what I was doing in the city, wherever I was traveling, I always felt like I was missing someone or something so like you're pining for a past life you know what i don't know if it was even a, a past life but it it almost feels like there was something or someone like something specific no i, I okay i'm saying that that experience that you're having could also be a past life oh it could be yeah absolutely i find i find this very interesting and this is definitely one of the Theories we get into is discussing our pursing out talking about mood and other sensate stuff that goes on and so the fact that you there's an air that has a feeling of melancholy is really significant uh, is this true for other dreams you have do you have that sensate experience with mood 
I think so. I think that um, I tend to have a really, really bad memory unless it's attached to emotion. And I think that's for anybody, actually, like the best way to remember something. I think the joke is if you want to like memorize like uh, 200 words for your test tomorrow, then, you know, go on a roller coaster, like inject your learning with fear and then you'll remember the words. So I think whenever I have dreams that don't have a lot of emotion, it's one of those situations where you wake up and you know that you had a dream, but it fades away really quickly versus when there's a lot of emotion. And I tend to be an extremely emotional person, like intensely emotional. Um, then the dream, I can remember it. And probably I could still remember it today, probably. With that said, do you mind sharing your basic astro stats? Yeah. Um, I talk about it all the time and people are just like, why do you share your chart? And I'm just like, well, I haven't, you know, like to me, like it's, it's one of those things where I got into YouTube and talked about the occult because I wanted to kind of take away this like secret, secret part of the occult. Yes. (laughs) So I'm just like, well, if I want to take away the secretive part of the occult, which I guess no longer makes it occult because occult literally means hidden, um, then I need to also live it. You know, I can't just talk the talk. I got to walk the walk, you know? So my sun sign is Pisces. My rising is Gemini. And my moon is Virgo. Yeah, you know, um, I'm so close to having like a serial killer's like <laughs> natal chart, <laughs> all mutable signs. <laughs> I know, like it's it's pretty it's pretty legit my uh, natal sign. And uh, I actually had my chart done by Rachel of Alien Heart. I don't know if I'm not familiar with her. Oh, she's I kind of see her as like the Stevie Nicks of like the astrology. Yeah. Oh my God. She says a lot. Yeah. Love my Stevie. (laughs) Oh my God. She's glorious. And she gave me one of the most empowering, empowering uh, natal chart readings. And, you know, I have a lot of hard aspects, a lot of opposition, you know, and squares and all that. Yeah. And one of my biggest, uh, the one that really bummed me out, was that I have a Mars Saturn opposition. I have mm-hmm. Mars and Pisces, which everybody says is like a weak ass Pisces, mm-hmm. uh, weak ass Mars. <laughs> and so I was like, bummer. And then that's in my 10th house. And then in my fourth house, there's like Saturn in uh, Virgo. Oh, girl. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like, oh, double bummer. And so I was just like, oh, man, this means that I'm never going to do anything with life. And, you know, Alien Heart, she, this was amazing. You could see it that way, or you could see this Mars and Pisces as maybe a prima ballad, you know, somebody who's motivated by a transcendental experience, mm-hmm. art, beauty, you know, like a Piscean activity. So a prima ballerina and this Saturn in Virgo as this like really just like you hate her, but amazing like Russian, you know, like Bolshoi ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, instructor who wants to push you and push you and push you and it's like she's going to make you dance until your feet bleed but then that's how you become the prima ballerina yes so you can see it like that I always try to look at the agitate the hard stuff as agitation to push forward I think that's such a great way to approach anything in life really 
I totally agree. And, you know, once she told me that sort of way of looking at it, and it's the same aspect, but just the perspective was changed. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the agency. Yes. Going back. So it's sort of like, oh, I can decide how I want to frame my natal chart. It's not fatalistic. No. Not at all. In fact, it's your roadmap and it's how you perceive it. I let you know I'm a Gemini rising too. I just want to say, hey, hey. Hi, girl. (laughs) Hey, girl. Hey. (laughs) And the rising really is one of the more significant aspects as to how people view you. That's how they're experiencing you. Like, how do you feel as, I mean, do people automatically think, oh, she must be a Gemini because of your rising? I think, well, I'm an actual, I'm actually an extreme introvert and I live a rather monastic life. Mm -hmm. And so because I'm out there with music videos and the show and other stuff, and I communicate fairly well, you know, it's, it's the Gemini they're experiencing. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, they, I think people can grasp onto that. But the reality is, as I just said, I'm I'm very private. I'm a, an extreme introvert. And so by the end of interactions, I'm exhausted and I just want to lounge and recoup because my, uh, you know, mm-hmm. flow of energy. That is such an interesting thing for you to say, because I think I'm very similar. Like uh, people, they, they assume, because when I first meet them, like uh, I have a lot of that Gemini sort of like, hey, how are you? Is everybody comfortable? Oh my God, you know? Um, But the thing is, is that when people get to know me, they're just like, you're a lot more serious (laughs) than you first uh, seem to be. (laughs) The other side. (laughs) Right. That's when they see, first of all, they see my Pisces sun, but then they also experience my Virgo moon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Virgo moon is a bit of a bitch. So, yeah. Um, So for me, like... um, well, I have to say that I think that everybody should have a natal chart reading. And I love um, Stephen Forrester, um, his The Inner Sky. In the book, it says, listen, you don't have to get a natal chart. You can have a ton of failed love affairs and you'll figure out who you are. You can, you, can, you know, like do a lot of things. But what a natal chart does, it's kind of like a shortcut, you know. So you get a map before you do all this stuff, you know. But you'll eventually learn. But this is just a quick, easy sort of way to kind of give you a head start. So, I mean, go for it. And after I got this natal chart reading by Rachel on Alien Heart, it was after that, and also when I got a geomancy reading from Sam Block, uh, a digital ambler, um, after that, and he was just like, yeah, the, the YouTube channel seems like a good idea. And Rachel was like, oh my God, girl, you got mars and you got the sun in the 10th house in pisces yeah you know if you're doing anything spiritual you know and in the public eye you should go for it and i was like holy shit i do have this youtube channel and after those two things like i just went for it and the momentum just built from there it's like anything else it's a tool and and why not use it and especially when you can see the mechanism here and the thing that adds i think credence to it or even a collective agency to it is that a lot of people project into it as well even the debunkers or the naysayers they still feed it by thinking it's crap and so 
you know, there's a lot of power to be had there. And so I'm with you. It's a tool. Use it. Why not? Why wouldn't we want to use the tools at hand? Exactly. And the thing is, is that I was already doing something that kind of matched up with what Aeolian Hard and Sam Block of Digital Ambler were talking about. So it's not like I completely reinvented myself. It's more that there were all these um, specific shapes and I was holding sort of a key to the shapes and they all kind of interlocked well. And so I was like, oh, it could have been a million different things that I could have chosen, but I chose this simply because. Um, but it all fit together. And then what I realized was that when you're on the right path, quote unquote, it sounds so new agey, but when you're on the right path, things, not that they're easier, but there's a certain speed, momentum, and a, a grace in how things kind of unfold. And that's what I took as, oh, well, I guess this is a good idea, you know, to do it because the way that it kind of very almost like a ballerina like doing swan lake like gracefully unfolded step by step i was like okay all right i'll keep doing this until it's sort of like and you know when the ballet the curtains go down then it's the next thing so again it was like me trying to figure out like okay agency yes what does agency look like though i think agency mm. a lot of people they associate it with this very masculine definition of it you know it is this modern or postmodern, well, I guess more modernistic view of like me versus the world. Mm -hmm. I control, I'm the captain of this ship. I control everything. I'm not sure if that's completely what agency is because I think one of the basic tenets of magic is that you are just part of the environment. You know, like, because we're human, we think, oh, the world revolves around us. I don't know about that. You know, going back to uh, Sabrina Scott, and which body? She talks about how, like, we're just a part of the environment. You know, the human being is just part of this entire world. Um, and in Asian art, if you look at it, a lot of it is where they're showing, like, a big portrait of nature. And the human being is just a tiny speck. You know, they're just a part of the whole holistic ecosystem. And so if you're just part of the environment, then agency is also the environment interacting with you. And, you know, when we were talking about glamour magic and glamour magic being you reacting to the environment, you know, the context of the situation, the world, the socioeconomic structures, and then it reacting back to you, it's the same sort of like flexible, kind of like ooey gooey, uh, sort of expanding and contracting, you know, because you're just part of the entire system you're part of the matrix. You're like literally like in the code of the matrix. You're just another part of the code. And therefore you have to consider the rest of the code as well, which is why I think it's easy to say, oh, you know, was it really agency? If you were just like, well, this is moving pretty well, I guess I'll just go with it. And I'm saying yes, because I'm also the world. I'm also the events unfolding. I'm also this person being like, yeah, I'll go on your YouTube channel and give you an interview, you know, taking away that binary like separation you know, for all part of the matrix, just part of the same code, then yeah, it was me acting upon myself and myself acting back on me, but like a specific part of me. So it was also me figuring out after doing this YouTube stuff, like, ah, this is what agency means to me. And it works for me. That's, that's what I wanted to say with all this. The proof is in the pudding here. And uh, the fact that you did pick up this tool, and several, but this one in particular with the astrology 
and align yourself with these natural flows that are running through your chart and are successful. You're just gaining more success as you go and watching it. And uh, that's what it's about. This is, this is how great it is to align yourself. I, I think it's like a shortcut in a way that we, we all get to checkpoints in time, I think. It's just there are so many different paths to get there. Why not choose sometimes the easiest one, the one that's like clearly there and you can see? Yeah, for me, I always see it as what is the most graceful way? So because I have a Virgo moon, I think that I kind of find glamour in the the hustle, in the, the grinding, in the the hardness, you know, like the challenge. So maybe for somebody who has a different um, astrological sort of triad, they might want something that's like super smooth and easy. But for me, it's always like, oh, what's, what is this thing that makes me feel like glamorous, but yet it also appeals to this, maybe this dramatic part of me that loves this idea of like, you know, like there's this conflict and I have to overcome it and I'm the underdog and there's a chip on my shoulder and I, you know, very Eminem from Eight Mile. Um, so it's, for me, like, I always thought of it as if I were like Natalie Portman in Black Swan, you know, and to have this like incredibly beautiful, like, uh, ballet, this dance, and it has to have conflict and it has to have ups and downs. And when I reframed my life as, is this a beautiful dance? Is it, is it Oscar worthy, you know, or is it one of those really boring, like art house flicks where nothing happens? And I was just like, I, I like the sort of, you know, like the intense stuff that's happening. And that means that other people looking in might be like, man, she chooses the hard way. And I'm like, I'm choosing my way. You know, like I just did an interview with uh, uh, Jake Stratton Kent and uh, amazing writer. Um, I, I think a lot of people would agree that he helped bring back um, grimoire um, scholarship. And um, he, he was talking about like grimoires um, and also about how he lives and practices magic. And while he was talking, I was like, oh my God, this totally reminds me of like Frank Sinatra's like my way, you know, like that smooth sort of like crooning. But what's the underlying message to that song? It's like, fuck you. I do it my way. Right. I was like, yeah, just like, just like Frankie, just like Frankie doing it my way. I love that. And, and it speaks to everything in terms of, if we look at it in terms and in context to the way we dream and what's possible through dreaming and other states of consciousness that we don't necessarily, that we can, but we do not always necessarily inhabit to uh, find our way within that whole inner and outer as within, so without. So with that said, how do you see this internal scape and its role of projection into your outer world? And how much agency do you give to the act of dreaming in and of itself? Ooh, well, I remember listening to an episode of, I think it's called Third Eye Drops. It's this podcast and it's so trippy. And they had like a, a Jungian uh, psychoanalyst and he does a lot of dream therapy. And he was saying like, you know, like every day for decades, he's been recording his dreams. He has a dream journal. 
And it was like only after like many years of recording your dreams, you kind of compile a dictionary of what your dreams actually mean. Um, and I remember after hearing that, I was like really pumped. I was just like, man, I'm going to record my dreams every single morning. And I think for like six months I did it. And um, after that, that's when I also realized that that's one way of figuring out like the, the dictionary, the vocabulary of your dreams. But if you're somebody like me who's very emotion driven, um, for me, it's more about the emotions that come from the dreams and me examining like how I feel, you know, like when I wake up, what sort of feelings do I have? And using those feelings as ways to figure out like what it is that I'm really, really thinking about and what it is that I'm really wanting and longing for. And, you know, like recently, for example, my dreams have been very level, nothing intense, um, which makes sense because my life is very balanced right now. But there was a time where, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like I was like totally having problems with, you know, like my romantic life. And, you know, I was constantly having dreams about this, like, one dude. And, you know, like, sometimes I wouldn't remember the actual dream, but I would remember the emotion. And I remember, like, um, I would use the emotion from the dreams to do magic. Because, you know, everybody always says you shouldn't do love magic or anything like that. Um, there's this real judgment about it. But I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, if you look at the, the old grimoires, uh, that's what people people did magic for. It was for money and it was for sex and love. It was to get paid and to get laid. So in that sense, because those are two things that drive most human beings, it's only natural that you're going to do magic for love. And I would use the, the dreams almost as a guide, like, uh, try magic this way, you know, today, because this is the feeling that you're having. And then try it this way. And, you know, sometimes I'd be like, oh, this magic is working great. And sometimes I'd be like, oh, this magic is not working great at all. But ultimately, things resolved beautifully in a very um, cacophonous <laughs> way, but it was beautiful. And I realized that my dreams all along were almost like this bewitching, you know, woman, like, beckoning to me with her finger, index finger, like, come down a little bit more. It's like that rabbit. It's like that woman with the rabbit tattoo, the white rabbit tattoo in the beginning of the Matrix. You know, and it's like, you don't understand exactly what each step is going to lead to, but by following her and by not listening to what society says, you know, like love magic is bad, da, 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 da. this is that, whatever, judgment, judgment, judgment. Um, finally, things were able to resolve in a way that was very satisfying. It took, a, it took a long time, but it was ultimately a very incredible magical experience. So to me, that's one of the most um, practical ways that I use my dreams. I, I love that you are reaching this topic because it is it is kind of taboo for some people, not for me and not for Jerry, certainly, but it, some people do, I, I do find people put, putting their noses up to this kind of stuff. Do you have any good examples of how dreams informed your witchcraft? Mm -hmm. Like and, and you know, of course, scrubbing names and all that, but just you know, coming out of a dream and realizing that you are going to use that or <clears throat> examples of dreams that have influenced your work. Similar. Uh, okay. Well, we'll go back to this guy that I was having problems with and doing all this love magic around. 
um, you know, sometimes, and I'm sure we've all had this experience where we wake up from a dream and we're just pissed off at a person. You know, we're just really angry. In the dream, they did something and it really hurt us. It made us angry. And for me, it's a type of shadow work. So in the dream, in this relatively safe environment, um, I was experiencing betrayal and um, unhappiness that I didn't necessarily experience in this waking life. So I was working through that. But, you know, um, I would wake up from those dreams just feeling just all sorts of emotions, like anger, like almost like irrational anger, maybe some people would say. It would be judged like that. And I'd just be like, oh, my God, you know, fuck this guy. And then I'd just be like, I'm going to do magic and stuff and, you know, whatever, you know, to make it so that this guy feels what I feel. And so, like, I would do this magic. And I think a lot of people would judge me on that. And, you know, I think that it's scary to talk about. Um, when I was at the Magical Women Conference, um, Deborah Castellano, um, she's somebody that I've interviewed on my channel. Uh, she and I were talking about how love magic is considered to be like this, like, oh, you know, like, don't even go there. How dare you? And it's sort of like, how is that so different than money magic? You know, like, what you're doing a lot of times with any sort of magic is you're trying to manipulate people. That's just facts, you know, end of sentence, period. You're trying to manipulate people, but when it comes to love, that's considered a big taboo. Like, no, you can't go there. And she and I were discussing, is it because, you know, it's this sort of like an unconscious misogyny, you know, this feeling of like, oh, you know, when it comes to money, yeah, you can manipulate the feelings of the HR manager to have them hire you. Maybe you're not that qualified, who knows, but you know, they'll like you more. And that's totally fine. In fact, that's encouraged for you to be more likable so that they'll hire you so that you'll get money. But when it comes to love, why is that so different? Is it because um, women, you know, like women are doing a lot of love spells and men are afraid of being controlled or manipulated, um, of being hoodwinked, of being put against their, um, their agency? So for, you know, like thinking about it and talking about it, like what I realized was that a lot of this love magic that I was doing that, you know, was sort of like based upon anger, you know, it was like shadow material. And what I found was that the magic, the results, like it was very cathartic and healing for me. And it didn't really affect him that well, because of what I've realized is that magic done in that sort of hyper like, oh my God, revenge, you know, state, it doesn't tend to work very well. It's almost like this, this thing where like the best magical state is to be in that very liminal, neutral state, at least for me. And so for me to do this magic, it was more like a exorcism for myself. So the magic, the results is like, you know, I just get even more pissed because I'd be like, oh, I did this magic and he's just totally fine. But, you know, getting that out of my system eventually you know, like it made me feel better. And again, like it all ultimately ended up beautifully. So for me, the shadow work, that the dreams were able to draw out. And for me to then in the waking life, use the dream material to fuel these like basically like self shadow integrating rituals. That was very helpful. That's a good example. How do you see, what is the difference in states of consciousness from say dreaming the dream experience and this experience as you see it 
do you mean like when I would have like the really nasty dreams versus having that experience in real life? Well, just in general, what's that membrane between us in waking life and us in dream life? Because clearly we inhabit that space and really that space is internal, which could be said is more actually real in the end than this external uh, projected reality you, you know that we're living so it's a matter of how our consciousness is sliding from that to this what do you think is going on there with that hmm. i can't speak for anyone else because i think it really depends on the person oh i agree definitely yeah but for me um it's i almost feel as though um this dream state or this state of, I guess, in the new age community, they would call it like fourth dimension, you know? So this world that we're living in where we have the five senses, confusingly, they call it like 3D, like three-dimensional world. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then your dream world, the astral travel world, um, the trance world, like fourth dimension. So it's a little bit higher in frequency. Um, So for me, um, the fourth dimension is very fascinating. It's like this, uh, I, I don't want to say it's like a super safe space because, you know, I've tried to do like astral projection and I just freaked out. Like there was this point where I was about to jump out and I was just like, oh, never mind. Um, yeah, but it's, not, a, it's, it's yeah. not a nice place. Yeah. Like I just have a feeling that like it's just not a super friendly place. But I think within dreams, within the structure of my dream world, at least there's some sort of safety that I've erected there that I can explore things that maybe are difficult for me to admit in this waking world. Like it's, you know, it's difficult to admit that, you know, you can be small and petty. It's difficult to admit that like actually what that person said really affected you. You want to be like, I'm not bothered. You know, that's like the big thing right now, right? Can't be bothered. I don't care. Because that's what a cool girl does, or that's what a cool person does. They don't care. But deep down, you do care. And so the dream world is a place where I can care. And then I can just be like, oh, man, that's a dream. You know, that's not really me. Um, but hey, what a, what a great, quote unquote, excuse for me to think about. Mm, what would happen if I actually did care, like what this dream is suggesting? So... To me, it's like a, a somewhat safe place. So is there a boundary? For me, I choose to put a boundary there in a lot of ways. But I think for a lot of people, there is no boundary. With that said, what is your experience with, say, so now on the astral projection, what's your experience with lucidity and lucid dreams? Sometimes they happen for me, but, you know, I've tried really hard to do lucid dreaming. Like, I've read all the books, the techniques, you know, like, look at your hands, and do they look like, you know, do they look like normal? If they're not, then you're in a dream, and look at the clock every, like, once once an hour, and then, you know, get into that habit, so that when you're in the dream, you can, like, start looking around and be like, hey, wait a second, the clock is wrong. You know, there's 13 on the clock, so this must be a dream. I've tried to do all that. But it, it just, I don't know, like, it just doesn't really work for me. I think that maybe this is just my theory. I just need to be in an immersive experience when I'm in my dream, because that's almost like a ritual space. 
you know, it's almost like a stage for the actors, you know, but the Shakespearean, the line about all the world's a stage, we're just merely players. I think maybe I need that space to, to be really into it. Much like maybe in this world, in this 3D world, I don't feel quite as much like an actor. I feel a little bit more disconnected from it versus in the dream world, I'm fully in it, which is kind of weird because usually you would think it would be the other way around. But maybe that's, I don't know, who knows? Maybe my dream world is actually like where I'm really at. And this waking world is just me being like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just part of the matrix, you know, I'm not totally in it. So I don't know. Well, and and that's one of the great ponders here. And it's certainly uh, at the nexus of lots of dream study going on at places like the Monroe Institute and all that is it, it, the base of that is where's the where's consciousness and uh and as i postulate that coming from kind of a heavier union background that a lot of the internal stuff is actually the real stuff and so the dream world which is of course our portal in many ways that's built upon the symbolic language and in this particular to each person which is why we ask about you know, like stuff that influenced you in your little. Your set of symbols is going to be slightly different than anyone else's, right? And right. so that's important. And that's, as I always say, that's what's difficult in people doing dream analysis. Is like, well, they don't know your... I could have come in here and assumed you were a nature child and you had tree forts and all that. So anything I built up from that assumption... And then try to interpret your dreams would have been incorrect, and and that's what bothers me about analysis of dreams. Unless you're in close contact with someone and you know them really well, so yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about here. Is is it where is what is more real? This kind of outer world, and this is why the magic stuff is so fascinating for me. Yeah. As, as a witch especially is we have full reign to and I think should use and try to manipulate our, our current our, our environment that is that is absolutely in our hands to do why not try and I understand letting yourself go and letting the flow happen yet there's there's still that's still exercising choice right <laughs> 100 yeah facts facts yeah like I, you know going back to the idea of what is reality you know this waking world versus the dream world is there a boundary is there not a boundary all that stuff i'm not sure but i will say that i want to share this one dream that i had and this is a dream that made me not afraid of death so this was maybe when I was either late teens, early 20s. And what happened was I had this dream, and usually my dreams are very visual. This dream was less visual. Instead, what I just saw was like a wash of color, almost like when you're looking at, you know, like when your computer it has like that default screensaver where it's just like colors, like, you know, like one moment it's like red and then it like morphs into yellow and stuff. So I had this dream where it was morphing like into all these colors. And I realized this is actually me outside of my body. Like my, my quote unquote soul, it had gone out of my body and I was dying, you know, not literally dying, but it was like I was dying. And so, you know, like first I went through these colors and 
I didn't see anything except these colors. And then I had these feelings. And each color that I saw, this feeling of peace that I can't use words to describe. Like there is no vocabulary that exists to describe this feeling of peace. But it's very similar in some ways to that feeling of melancholy and nostalgia that I felt that I always feel when I go into my dream city. You know, like each level that I rose, the peace became deeper and deeper and deeper. And yet there was this bittersweet sadness to it as well. Um, and in some ways that gave it more meat. Like it was almost like, oh, you know, like the whole, the whole circle and not just one side, but the whole thing. And then when I reached this, like, I guess the pinnacle of it, I guess it was like a white color. It was like a translucent whitish purple color. I suppose, um, the, the feeling at that point, um, it was like a type of nirvana. And the feeling was so intense that I can still, I can still put myself into that feeling right now. And after I woke up from that, I was just like, I just knew, you know, I had no reason to rationally think, oh, I had died. And I had gone through like, what the new age would call like the dimensions, like rising up to the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. But that's kind of like what I felt like I did. And then after that, I was like, ah, okay. So that's what's going to happen when I die. And after that, I was just like, I, I'm just not going to be scared of death anymore. And when you're not afraid of death in that way, like you're afraid of dying in terms of, you don't want to get off this ride that is life, but you're not afraid of death as an, oh my God, you know, like, is there going to be heaven? Is there, is there going to be hell? Like the way that you start living life afterwards and the way that you view your dreams and you view everything, reality, just in general, it shifts, it changes. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that's what kind of turned on the witch mind. You know, before then it was sort of like, I was like you know, an average but eccentric kid. But then after that dream, it's sort of like click. Who knows? Maybe that's what happened. With so with that, let's let's talk about this more. Uh, in so in context to dreaming, have you experienced dreaming before people have passed that you know, no. inc including animals? Nope, never. And have you had people that you know that may have passed pop up in your dreams? Um, my grandfather. So, I mean, he passed away recently and, you know, he popped up. Um, I didn't know him very well because he lives where he lived in Korea. Um, but he was in my dream, you know, being grandpa, kind of silent, benevolent type in the background. But he wasn't like a fixture. He wasn't like the, the star of the dream. And also, um, many years ago, um, I had somebody very close to me, somebody I loved very deeply, commit suicide. and. You know, like I didn't sleep for close to a week after that. I literally could not sleep. But then one day when I was able to finally go to sleep, he also came to me in the dream. And I just remember him telling me that he's okay. So those have been the two times that I can remember. But in general, no, I, I don't really have premonitions when it comes to dreams. Okay, that, yeah, that was kind of next. So what about also within within the dreamscape what about experiencing others other entities 
you know, anywhere from animals to ETs to people to just others, that it feels like they are not part of you and your internal mechanism, that they're driving their ship and you're driving yours. Not really. But then again, I'm not one of those people who would really notice it that much. Like, I think ever since I had, you know, the, the Mia Sarah lookalike in my dream, um, talk to me that you control your dreams. Ever since then, just I don't pay attention as much to those distinctions in my dreams. Um, whether or not this person or this thing may be part of the dream or separate from. Um, I, it's strange, but I just never really pay attention to that. And it just never pops out to me, you know, so it's possible, but I've never had dreams about ETs, never had dreams about no premonitions, nothing like that. My dreams are, you know, they're not prophetic in any sort of way. And then just more in the dream mechanics stuff here. What about, uh, so bigger thing like archetype? archetypal things like big bodies of water the dream city is very archetypal in and of itself i mean that's to me that's an archetype but uh bodies of water or say sea leviathans uh anything like that a huge part of uh, my dream city is the university so there's like a school um there's some place where people are learning there's amusement parks it's a lot of architecture in terms of water, absolutely, there's, there's like a beach there, but do I ever go to that beach? Do I ever see the water, like the vast sea? I don't, but I know that there's a beach. It's almost like, I keep going back to movies, but it's like the Truman Show. You know, it's, there's this like, it's almost like a stage. And there's like this door where it's like, you think that it's like the end of the beach or the boardwalk and it's actually just a door. Movies are a great example because most people can, it gives them a visual. So I love yeah. when people, when people, anything in culture and especially pop culture that people can access. It's less for us to describe. The door is yeah. actually a hatch and it's probably in Antarctica or in the dome. One of the two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what about flying? Girl, do you fly? I do, and it terrifies me because I'm afraid of heights. I have a lot of phobias. Um, I'm actually like not very brave at all about a lot of things. Um, there's some flying, you know. It's a, very typical. Like I, I kind of, I'm not saying I'm not trying to denigrate my dreams, but in a lot of ways, they're they're very boring. You know, there there's nothing to me that they're. You know, to me, I'm just like, oh, you know. I'm not visited by these rays from outer space, you know, like I fly once in a while, but it's not like I'm, you know, there's not this great ocean with like a, you know, a tsunami wave coming to me that I magically can part or anything like that. There's something very almost like, it's kind of like, it literally is a lot of times just either the dream city, which is, you know, has a mall, it has a fountain. One time I was like sort of seeing this guy and we were like, and he was like really into like dreams. And I was like, yeah, one day we should like meet at the fountain in my dream city. And he promised me that he would find a way to my dream city. Like we never discussed the logistics of that happening. But um, yeah, so it's like, you know, I have a fountain. I have a mall where, you know, sometimes I go to the mall and it's like closed. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, you know, I really needed to go to the store. So either I have dreams like that or I just have 
you know, what Koreans called like a kekun, dog dreams, which are dreams that are just almost like your brain processing stuff. So they're just, you know, they're just dreams. And you just know that in a lot of ways, the meaning of it is maybe not as deep as other dreams. So it's, I kind of have one or the other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that it, especially from the whole union perspective, there, I mean, it's the whole sector of getting through the daily filing, you know, of, yeah. of what's going on in life. It, it, it's, it's all juicy, no matter what, if it's all just uh, daily filing or if it, it moves into other realms. I'm wondering your take on, so for me, I've often, uh, I talk about this and I, uh, because I've participated and so, the the witch's sabbat and and one way to perceive it there's so many ways from physically meeting with others to the dream experience uh, and then to a psychedelic experience and all that well i have personally gone in through the portal of dreams and obe and had had gatherings, you know, and, um, and it does no good in my experience to say, we'll meet at this tree under this thing. And that it's just an intent to meet these people that you're closely entwined with. And, and then the rest of it unfolds, you know, the location. In fact, I find trying to present a location has hindered me and, and not worked for me ever. And so that, what are your ideas on this aspect, the astral idea of of Sabbath meetings, of meeting up with others astrally, but in particular, since uh, a large slant uh, of focus, especially in your channel and everything you're doing is within the context of witchcraft, what, how do you feel about that? What are your thoughts on astral witches Sabbaths? Oh my God, that sounds so cool. It'd be like kind of being in like a Facebook group, but you're actually like more <laughs> embodied, right? You know, like I, I would love that. And I think that's, you know, like I keep talking about the new age and I'm kind of like, you know, like wink, wink, like nudge, nudge, like kind of like, you know, taking the piss out of them. But the thing is, is that they have a lot of vocabulary that's very useful. and. Um, you know, they, they talk they talk about things using like these like far out terms like man, you know, like vortex and the energy and stuff. Um, but I think a lot of what they talk about um, in terms of like you know like energy bodies like meeting, like, you know, like in the occult, there's this focus on maybe meeting energy bodies that are not human, you know, in form. But I think in New Age, there's a lot of like talk about like you know this collective like human beings like all meeting like in the fourth dimension and stuff like that and i love that and i personally as somebody who hates like getting out of my pajamas you know i would love to be able to have like an astral sabbath um and i also think that if that were something that was commonplace like i have heard this theory so when i was living in bali um so I lived in Bali for five months, like just as context, um, from October till February, October of 2018 to February of this year. And the thing is, is that in front of every single house that you go into, like a family compound in Bali, there's like a statue of Ganesha, who's like the elephant god of prosperity. 
And, you know, like this was an Airbnb and I was with like my, my friend, Josh and, you know, his friend also came in from like the States to, you know, like live for a little bit in Bali. And his friend was one of those guys who could like see, you know, like he could see energy and spirits and stuff like that. And so like, you know, when he would walk into the compound, he could literally see Ganesha, like not the statue, but like the actual spirit, like there. And to me, that was like super trippy. And, you know, like, I, I remember talking to him about like, oh, why is it that you guys don't want to like him and Josh? Um, how come you guys aren't like super into like the grimoires and ceremonial magic? It seems like right up your alley. You know, it's like kind of fun to do. And, you know, they said something very interesting that stuck with me, which is that, you know, like the veil is internet. I was like, holy shit, the Mayan calendar, you know, 2012 was supposed to be like the end of the world, you know? And a lot of people are saying now it's like the end of an era, you know, like it's almost like the humankind was put out of quarantine and it's sort of like the veil is thinner, the spirit world and, you know, speaking of boundaries, the spirit world and this like mortal world, like the humanoid world, human flesh world, there's less of a boundary. And so they're like, meat suit world. Excuse me? Meat suit world. Ah, yeah, exactly. So it, you know, um, they, they were just like, you know, the veil is thinner. And so for us, it's a lot easier to access it without having to go through a lot of practices, like ceremonial magical practices that maybe were necessary when the veil was like super dense and thick. I was like, oh my God, wait, I never even considered that. So, you know, like this also like going when we're talking about dreams and stuff, I totally forgot the original question because I was like, I went off on a tangent. Like, you know, like speaking of dreams, you know, if dreams are, let's say, according to new age, like uh, vocabulary, like if dreams are like fourth dimension and there's less of a boundary between fourth dimension and third dimension, that who knows? Like, who knows? In like 10 years, like hypothetically, I could like be walking around in this world and meet my dream self, like, like a doppelganger, like fourth dimensional me, you know, whatever she, it, he, whatever looks like so yeah i i think i totally went around in a circle like there but i think that i love a circle (laughs) i I, i'm following you you it's still it's still relevant to to the sabbath and to astral meetups Sabbath. that's what that's what we're talking about yeah so basically like you know i think that when it comes to this astral meeting of people like i would love for it to happen like, I am so down for it. I'm so down. But, you know, just the fact that the veil is thinner, and just intuitively, I have no proof of this, but just intuitively, I'm just like, yeah, the veil is thinner. So maybe this Sabbath, you know, this virtual Sabbath, it's actually closer to reality than we could possibly imagine. I don't know. This may sound completely far out. And when I'm saying it, it sounds a little bit far out. But at the same time, I'm just like, you know, if, if I want to stay, um, true to what I feel like the way that I construct this waking world. Let's, let's forget about the dream world for a second, but the waking world. If I am in this waking world, believing in this specific perspective, which is, you know, very matrixy, we're all part of code and stuff, you know, like this, this desk that this laptop is on and this laptop and me, we're all that green matrix code, but I'm just a little bit more denser than the air around me, but it's all still code. How could it not happen? How could uh, this virtual like Sabbath? Of course it's going to happen because we're all just code. 
you know, we're all just part of the matrix code. The question is, what is the, 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 I guess the line, the snippet of additional code that we need to put in to make it happen? And for me, that additional line is magic. But have I figured out like that, you know, or maybe the additional lines, have I figured it out? No, and I don't think I would, but I'm sure eventually it's going to happen somehow. Well, with all, with all that said, what do you, how do you view waking life? I, I mean, you've given us, you've given us actually a, a great foundation for how you view it, but in the end, what, what makes it so significant that we're all here and part, you know, we apparently seem to all be here and participating and yet there's all this wiggle room to uh, manipulate, you know, the energetics of it and, or the code. So I'm curious on your take of what is this experience we're having that is waking life? Ooh, ooh. Wait, is this a, what is life? Is, is this question about what is the meaning it, of life? It, it totally is. But it's from your, <laughs> come on. It's from uh, me. You know what? This is the thing. Everyone's qualified to answer this. And I just don't care. This is one of our, this is how punk rock we are. It, nice. You're as qualified as scientists made several PhDs, you know, in subcategories of consciousness. We come from that perspective. so. How do you see it? I see it as very specific to me. And when I say specific to me, I literally mean that each of us create our own reality. So the, the hardcore born-again Christian who believes in a fiery hell, I, I believe that there is a hell for them because they've created it. Um, it all goes back to the sense of agency and why do we have agency? You know, okay, we have it. Why? Or is there even a reason why? And to me, the reason is a non-reason. And this is a completely intuitive sense that I have, but it's almost like you just have it to have it. You have it to experience it. Like there is a, almost like a, a non-depth depth to life. You know, I don't think there's a deeper meaning than just you get to be embodied. You know, people are always talking about spirits are more powerful. Um, the spiritual world is superior. Um, you know, like everything embodied, sex, going to the bathroom, um, the five senses, money. These things are inferior. You know, you must always try to lift yourself up and to become more higher in frequency. You know, like become less embodied, become less dense. And you'll even see it in even... Um, when people are talking about nutrition, when people are talking about you know, wanting to become like raw vegan, you know, and eating only like high vibe foods, or you know, you want to be like super, super thin, you know, you're like you're trying to become less dense. The density of this world is considered inferior. I'm just like, in my mind, I'm just like, what well, well, if it was so inferior to be embodied, then why the fuck did we even bother becoming embodied? You know, we could have just stayed spirits in the ether. So I'm just like, there must have been some reason where the, the spirits were just like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to like actually have a body? And I'm just like, okay, maybe the reason in itself was literally just, this is a roller coaster ride. I think, um, what's his name? Oh, that comedian, the one who passed away like really young because he smoked too many cigarettes, the one with the cowboy hat, where he was just like, you know, life is just a ride. Mitch Hedberg? 
Mm, he had like a very like generic like white boy name. Um, I don't, I don't remember. It could have been that. <laughs> no. I'm calling cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I totally forget. But um, yeah, he was just like it's was all it Bill around. Hicks. Bill Hicks. That's yeah, right. I never saw him. Yeah, like his his routine is like amazing. And he was just, I like, love Bill Hicks. Yeah. Right. Bill Hicks, man, like. Who knew that, like, just one random day when I was on YouTube watching this guy with the cowboy hat, what he said would just completely be like, whoa. Um, basically, maybe we're just spirits here because this is just a, a cool roller coaster ride. You know? Like, why do we go on roller coaster rides? I don't know. It's fun. And now he plays Alex Jones. He does what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a conspiracy out there that Bill Hicks is Alex Jones or vice versa. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> girl! There are so many rabbit holes in the world. <laughs> oh okay, well, hey, you know if that if that makes you happy to think that, go for it. I mean, if you're not infringing on my like the four exactly. hole, like go for it. You know, I'm here talking about like freaking like you know this is all a roller coaster ride. So what do I have to say about anybody else's opinion? You know, but yeah, it's like who knows? Maybe that's that's what we're doing. We're just you know here just to. Now, like, have like this roller coaster ride. Well, wh where do you stand with the idea of? And this is certainly a conversation in in the magical circles: free will and fate. Mm. Free will. Oh. So, like, intent and fate, or you know, d the idea of destiny that you can't change. So, there's a million roads. Well, this is true with death. There's you have a million choices in life, but you're still going to die, right? Yeah. So the idea of how far can you manipulate your environment, you know, what is actually fated that you can't manipulate? You know, do you believe in fate at all or serendipity, any of that kind of stuff? Difficult question because oh, maybe there are milestones that you're reached no matter what there's certain things that are going to happen but like who knows like i don't know like this fatalistic way of seeing life it to me it feels boring and lazy and true you know it's sort of like you know i i did a video interview with dr Amelia elias who teaches uh, tarot and she said something that was so spot on. She was just like, you know, okay, so the cards tell you that somebody's going to come into your life, some stranger, you know, like it's going to come and you want to know what time. Okay. And the cards say it's going to come probably like in the month of December at 12 o'clock. What are you going to do? Just follow it like to the T. If so, then every day you just ask the cards, what's up? And then you just sit on your ass and you don't do anything because the cards have already told you. So you might as well do nothing. And I'm just like, is that why we're embodied on earth? That doesn't sound very interesting. You know, this concept of creating life, you know, literally like creating like life as a new life, a baby, or just creating life as a new project or just your life and stuff. So it's very hard for me to say like free will versus destiny. I just personally for me, because I choose to see myself as having a lot of agency, if not in the external world. You know, I was just watching this episode of um, Impact Theory, this amazing, like, a series on YouTube, and it's hosted by Tom Bilyeu. 
and he has all these like motivational speakers come on. And, you know, recently he had this, uh, I forget his name, but it was um, a spiritual teacher from India, I think, come on. And, he's, and the spiritual teacher basically said, you know, we are 100% in control of what goes on inside of us. And to me, that's kind of enough, you know, the Viktor Frankl sort of view that no matter what concentration camp, whatever happens in your life, you know, there's something inside of you that no guard, prison guard, no prison, no hellish um, environment can take away from you. And this idea of like this deep sense of agency, this deep sense of you are you, you know, like, and you're here to enjoy and to experience this curiosity of you being you. That's what informs my life. I do think that if somebody believes very much in fate, that's them and that's their reality and it's probably true for them. But for me, I choose not to see it that way and it's worked out fine for me. So again, this feeling, this definition of agency is like, it's not just about me controlling life, you know, the way that a man would control like uh, animals or, you know, domination and control and, you know, rawr, you know, I'm uber femme or whatever. It's not that. It's agency, again, as me being part of an environment, being part of a context, and me acting upon and being acted upon as well, um, on the other end, uh, by the environment, which is also part of me. So in that sense, does it really matter whether or not there's free will versus destiny? I don't know. Yeah, true. And I, I like that idea of outside of the, the idea of pondering in the end it it kind of doesn't really matter it really doesn't there and there's a big power in that in in the kind of the letting go <laughs> you know even more than just letting go is this this almost you know i think jason miller uh, once told me this and jason miller um he is i would have to say like if uh, which is in line the youtube channel that I curate basically. Um, if there's one person that I could put a disproportionate amount of like praise towards in helping the channel, it would be Jason Miller. And uh, he also runs like Sorcery of Hecate and uh, St. Cyprian School. And he was talking about, you know, this, this concept of the closer you get to something that you want or something just in general that is pleasurable or desirable for you, you know. The more that you get closer to it, the more softly you hold it, you lean into it. You don't strangle it. You know, you kind of lean into it. There's a, you know, there's a poet, I totally forget, Nair, what, like, totally butchering her name. But she talks about being brutally soft, you know, the oxymoron of brutal and soft. And so the leaning into, instead of grasping of something, so you're, you're softening yourself as you're going into exactly this pleasure zone, this like what you want. And, you know, maybe that is something that on the surface doesn't look like what you want, but you still soften yourself into it. And in my life experience, when I do that, life just tends to be more graceful, period. And for me, that's kind of what I'm trying to do, like live this graceful life. And so ultimately, does it matter? Is it fate? Is it free will? My real question, my only question is, is it graceful? I love how you, you continue to bring that back. I think I, as I, I'm heavily uh, 
influenced by Venusian properties in my chart and grace and the idea of grace and gracefulness in in its many nuances are are is something that I embody and I feel deeply. So I'm very much enjoying that language here and you're unfolding that into this greater conversation. I wonder what are your ideas on if there's a difference here, first of all, and if there's not, that's fine. But the idea of spirit and soul, what what's going on with all that? Spirit and soul. Oh my God. Um, oh. I'm I'm sure there's people who who you know are gonna say that there's a difference, maybe they're the same. Ultimately, you know, like this idea of I want to call it like the strange mental masturbation that happens when when people want to know what's real, you know? So instead of going out and experiencing it firsthand, like experiential knowledge, they're looking to parse things into smaller and smaller bits, thinking that they they're gonna understand it by that. The spirit and soul, I think, are things if they are different, these are things to be experienced. And if it's experiential, then it really depends on the person. And that's what I'm learning more and more. Like, and that's maybe one of the reasons why I stopped being such like a hardcore atheist. I still am an atheist. But once I realized that, you know, when you get into life as being experienced instead of intellectualized and parsed to the point where, you know, like, again, sort of like the rejection and this seeing the embodiment as inferior and seeing the cerebral and the abstract as um, superior, which also to me is kind of gendered, you know, like seeing this monastic sort of like um, all mind and all spirit, you know, thing, which can be seen as quite masculine, seeing that as like being the ultimate versus like the embodied you know, like the feeling, the intuition, the gut feeling, that thing that inside of you that you just kind of like know. Like if, when we're talking about that, and that's maybe we can see that almost in a more feminine way. Like once you kind of lose that, you know, and you get rid of the binaries and you get rid of that structure, then all of a sudden it's sort of like, well, what is your experience? Like, what are you firsthand like? experiencing when you try to access those parts of you and maybe a, a plant, animals, other people, situations. And then all of a sudden that opens up a conversation that has very little to do with like the definitions of like, what's the difference between this and that? And it becomes more of like what it is to you. And now can we find a common vocabulary so that we can talk to each other about it and then compare contrast but ultimately like build upon that so to me that's sort of what i'm trying to do with my my youtube as well it's like trying to see what's so ironic is that the more that i try to ask people like what is your individual experience there's this underlying sort of like thing where it's like everybody has this like a similar human experience a similar magical experience so Surprisingly, the more that we give space to people being their individual experiential selves, the more that we see that everything is like all one. And, you know, 
I swear I did not smoke weed before I came on this interview, but it's like <laughs> super, like, it's like, that makes like one of super, us. Like, oh man. That sure. makes two <laughs> of us. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hope that kind of makes sense. Oh, certainly. It certainly does. And, and again, these things are so, I think, personalized or individual, especially these, the greater, bigger questions that are kind of arcing our experience. And so, you know, I, this is why I eat them up. I, I, I cherish the individual idea of what it is we're going through what the hell is going on so in the in the end of of this idea of this ride of life and you've already given us an idea of your stance on death with that beautiful dream uh where do you see do you think is is it possible Joanne, to tap into your own death and move through it beforehand do you have any desire to do that is it something that seems tangible or real or is it something that is in the future and detached from you because of the nowness experience we have with consciousness hmm. well i suppose we can talk about death literally figuratively in so many different ways um let me throw a wrench into this real quick um going back to when you were talking about dreaming about your death and how that was relevatory yeah and expanded your awareness whatever that's actually like standard operating procedure Uh, lots of groups would call that initiation right brought to that point where you get that realization and it empowers your subconscious to generate more energy for your magic or whatever Mm. but it's a thing you're not like the first to discover that cool yeah i didn't know that i I did not know that wow um i will say this that i really wish that everyone experiences something similar to what i experienced with that dream um i don't know if either of you have experienced it Uh, have you Jerry? I have not. No, I'm like plain Jane, not a. (laughs) No. Well, it's one of those things where if somebody describes it to you, it's awesome and it's cool. But now that I've actually gone through it, it's, it brings me an incredible sense of peace. And so this peace is, it's kind of unshakable at this point because I trust that I'm a, sane human being. I really trust myself and I trust my discernment. I think a lot of people who are looking outside of themselves, like at a guru, a teacher, for the truth, a lot of it is because they don't trust themselves. Or maybe they've been told by society, you shouldn't trust yourself. You should trust somebody more special than you. I don't know. Well, they worry also about what people think of them. Or what people think. This is a huge problem in society today. It really is. But it's a very hindering thing. And what you believe is what you manifest. Facts, facts, 100%. Mm-hmm. And imagine if you firsthand experience something and you trust that what you experienced is relevant, true, it's real, and it's um, perhaps 
it goes beyond what anybody else tells you and you just know it because you trust yourself once that happens you know it don't matter what nobody else tells you it's like you know you know and once you have that then you can move through life differently yeah it's extremely empowering it's very empowering because it's not just intellectual knowledge it's experiential knowledge it's almost like you know like when you climb a mountain you know i think the most important thing about climbing a mountain like let's say mount everest is that you experience what it's like and once you do that it's sort of like oh i've climbed that i've literally climbed that mountain unless you die on the way up Unless you're one of the many people and <laughs> the growing number of people dying. That mountain is angry, man. It's killing people left and right. I love it. Oh my but God. Are they really dead? Hey, you know, according to a lot of <laughs> necromantic traditions, they'd be, you know, restless spirits, right? Actually, you know what? I know um, uh, a Nepalese um, woman, and she was saying how uh, the locals, they're just like, climb the mountain. Are you kidding me? Not because they're physically unable to, but because it's sort of like, why would you want to anger, you know, the mountain spirit? Exactly. And it's sort of like, well, you, you know, these tourists, they, they want to die. Okay, fine. You know, whatever. Actually, this uh, Nepalese uh, woman that I know, her uncle, I think he holds the Guinness Book, World, Guinness Book of World Records for um, the most frequent like summits to Mount Everest. And so I think he got like, uh, sort of like special citizenship to America. Like he got some honorary citizenship. Oh yeah, he survived, you know. He didn't have to stay in a camp down in Texas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but I mean, it's like he did it. So can you imagine if somebody has climbed Mount Everest, like, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like, let's say he climbed it like 12 times. Just having climbed Mount Everest 12 times, if I think, if I'm thinking if I climbed Mount Everest 12 times, and the thing is, I don't know until I've actually done it, I would move through this life very differently. Simply because I'm just like, oh yeah, I climbed Mount Everest 12 times and I survived. It's the same thing, you know, with this dream about the death that I had. So it's sort of like, okay, yeah. So, that so dude's name is uh, Kami Rita Sherpa. That's probably, you know, Sherpa is the most, I always thought Sherpa was just like the, you know, that's just a, a specific word that you use for your guide. Oh, it's no, it's surname. the last name. Yeah. It's the most common last name. So it's kind of like somebody from, let's say somebody from Nepal came to America or to Great Britain wanting some guide to the pubs. And, you know, a lot of people in Great Britain, their last name is Jones. It's like them, him going back to Nepal and being like, you know, you, you should get a Jones. You should get a Jones to show you the pubs. <laughs> so that's what Sherpa. That's hilarious. Kevin McCarthy, he knows the pubs the best. Yeah, he's gone up uh, 24 times. Holy shit. Yeah. So you know that guy, like, deep down, like, straight up gangster. You know, like, the way he moves through life, you know it's different. Simply because he's done that. He's a honey badger. He doesn't give a shit exactly exactly and you know i wish that i was at that level that he's at but you know one of the ways to perhaps like move through life with i guess more sure footing is to go out and experience it you know and maybe one day i'll be able to sit in a bathroom with the lights off and not freak out don't spend the day drinking wine and yelling on twitter there, there you go. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> I wasn't talking about your show or anything. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 
that's one of the things that I would wish upon humanity. I think if more people, you know, sometimes I think that people hoarding wealth and hoarding things and um, just and basically trying to hoard power is due to fear of death. I mean, I think most people would say, yeah, that's probably what it is. You know, you accumulate enough protection in this life to protect you against the unknown of death. You know, today I was going over um, Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be soliloquy with someone. And we were talking about, you know, for those of you out there who have not read this or you totally blanked out in high school because it was considered pretty boring to do. By the way, they, the way they teach Shakespeare in American public schools is a travesty. They don't really teach it the right way. They don't um, teach anything the right way. Facts, facts. Um, and the thing is, is that I think that the way that they teach Shakespeare, I mean, when I was taught Shakespeare, it was sort of like, you know, you like analyzed it almost like you were like in college, you know, and you've already gone through all Shakespeare. Actually, Shakespeare is meant to be read and Shakespeare wrote for a pop audience. Like this was not a highbrow audience that he was going after. He was going after like, you know, he was trying to make the money. He was trying to make the green. So he was like appealing to the mainstream audience. So he was much closer to like a Broadway show or like he was much closer to like a mainstream rapper. He was more like a Tigger, you know, than this highbrow like, oh, you know, what art, how you know whatever it is that people think Shakespeare is. Plus, he was um, he was writing in I don't know what you want to call it code or ciphers or analogies metaphor to mock the current establishment because that was illegal. You know, be burned at a stake for that kind of blasphemy. Literally, mm -hmm. I didn't know this, but Queen Elizabeth during mm -hmm. her reign there was more torture. <laughs> during her reign than a lot of other reigns like she, this lady was not playing around know. she was pope worthy if you ask me yeah elizabeth will burn your ass <laughs> she, she sure will yes ma'am yes, so i think what i was saying about that was that you know we were going over that soliloquy and the soliloquy is actually about whether or not hamlet he should just commit suicide you know he's like He's done with it. He's just like, man, my life is shit. You know, my dad's dead. And I know I need to avenge him, but I'm just tired of this. You know, and everybody wants me to be the prince and the next king. And I, I just don't want to. I, just, I, want to, I literally want to be an actor. Like, but it's like I can't because I'm a prince and all that stuff. Anyways, he's having issues. Um, so we were talking about that. And I was just like thinking to myself, but if Hamlet had experienced my dream, you know, if he had experienced it firsthand, I think that soliloquy would be a lot different because right when he was just like, ah, you know, therein lies the rub, you know, where he's just like, ah, to sleep, you know, but then he says, perchance to dream. And then he's like, oh, wait a second. Oh yeah. I forgot when you die, who knows what happens. But, but don't you think, don't you think that Shakespeare knew? I don't know. According to what my friends said in Bali about the veil being thin now, when Shakespeare was alive, maybe the veil was thick as fuck, you know? And so well, it's not that. It was more so that he was probably a member of one or more secret societies. That's, hey, that's so true. I mean, for, you know, audience members who may not be aware of this, I mean, Queen Elizabeth, her, her right-hand man was a dude named John Dee, right. who was a straight-up, like, wizard sorcerer. There's a... Um... There's a guy named Alan Green. He may be a doctor, I don't know, but I'll, I'll find a link for him. But he has a whole base, base of, he has a bunch of shit, <laughs> a bunch of work, research rather, that uh, links Dee and Shakespeare together as having worked together. Like uh, 
in the cipher capacity of D's work. Interesting. I mean, artists of, you know, throughout history, artists have definitely been the, the fringes of society or the aspects of society that go into all that stuff, right? They're always the ones who are going to try out the drugs first. They're the ones who are trying to like get into the shamanic mode first, you know? So, and the journeying, like spiritual journeying mode. So I can totally see Shakespeare doing that. Um, you just reminded so me too. Possible. Yeah. I, I, I'll find the link and I'll send it. To, I'll put it in the show notes, but, um, you just reminded me of something. Oh, this latest episode of uh, the Higher Side Chats with Joseph P. Farrell mm-hmm. talks about a lot about the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and art and how creative art was is a form of magic, which I fully believe, Facts. and Facts. that um, how it was being suppressed and why it was dangerous, really, like literally dangerous to everyone, not just you know the oligarchs. It's 100%. a good. It's a good episode, is what I'm saying. No, total facts. And uh, recently, Ben Jaffe, brilliant um, anthropologist scholar, um, I forget which university in Colorado he's in, but he recently linked me to an article about um, how mass media advertising is also a type of magic. And you know, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard of uh, Louis no, Delgado yeah. or Edward Bernays? Basically, the Nazis perfected mind control through advertising. They brought it to the United States, and now we live in this pool of it. Exactly. And it's amazing that, you know, like, academia is they starting to They call it consumerism. It. Exactly. Like, whether it's mass uh, media advertising, like Madison Avenue, or, you know, Kim Jong-un in North Korea with his juche, which is sort of like the North Korean ideals. Um, you know, any sort of propaganda, any sort of any mass communication. One of the reasons why I think that I really encourage, especially women and people of color, to have their own YouTube channel is because the, the mode of video, moving pictures, the visuals, that ability for YouTube or Vimeo, whatever, to be mass shared you know, on social media, that's visibility and that's power. And that, to me, is you know, one of the things that I talked about in my conference, the Magical Women Conference in London. Um, or my talk at the conference was about how Korea as a nation uses soft power, soft power being it's basically entertainment industry as a type of institutionalized glamour magic. And, you know, people talk about it, economists, um, historians, they talk about hard power, like the heavy industry, you know, you go into textiles and then you like build like steel and then the cars and the electronics. And then you go into the soft industry or the soft power. But the soft power is incredibly, incredibly powerful and potent. Hollywood has probably inspired and shaped so much of culture today. And who knows how much of that culture has also influenced politics, just regular art economies. Um, and now Korean pop culture is de facto Asian culture. We're talking in China, in Singapore, in Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand. Cambodia, um, Korean pop culture dominates in those markets. There are people in Southeast Asia. I had lived in Bali for five months. There are people in Southeast Asia who speak Korean better than me. And I am actually Korean American. And, you know, Korean is not used in the UN as an official language. It's not used in business as like, uh, you know, the, what is it called? The Franco lingua, the, the main language. It's not Chinese, it's not English, it's not French. 
And yet, there is a huge amount of youth today that are learning Korean simply because they want to be able to understand the lyrics to the latest BTS song. And how did Korea do this? They did it through YouTube, they did it through music videos, they did it through TV shows, they did, they did it through movies. That, to me, is institutionalized soft, glamour magic. There's a huge entertainment company in Korea called SM Entertainment. They have a book. They don't call it a grimoire, but it is literally a grimoire. It details, you have to use this glamour in this market. In the Philippines, you have to use this sort of eyeshadow, this sort of fashion. In America, this. They have, a, they have a manual of best practices, a grimoire of best practices, best glamour magic practices. You know, so to me, this sort of idea of, I guess, what glamour magic is, and going back to um, the agency, and back to why glamour magic to me, I keep pressing upon it, and why I'm just like, you know, if you're young, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're underrepresented, underrepresented in mainstream media, please go on YouTube, start a channel. You know, this is how glamour magic, to me, like authentic glamour magic, this is it working in the best way possible. It's where you take mainstream society and in a way that the gatekeepers of mainstream society can't block immediately, you start to shift the bell curve, like the, the big, massive, like the top part of the bell curve, you start to shift it a little bit to the left, to the right, wherever you want it to go. And then a little bit more and a little bit more by using this glamour magic. And that's how you change society, like in my world. You know, there doesn't have to be a bloody revolution. Instead, it's just a person sitting in front of a camera and making a YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also like showing, it's like the role of uh, artists and uh, writers and the such, showing, cr creating something that cannot be seen mm. and throwing an image to it or words around something that is, seems intangible. So, like in The Matrix, um, I don't know if that's a good example, showing, presenting, through art, something that was unseen before, and now the collective can glum onto it and create create it. They see it, something they couldn't see before because of these visionaries. And that is also an act of, of glamour, creating something from nothing. I mean, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a good example. You know, there she created this whole thing and and then released it. And now look where that has gone 178 years later or something. Yeah, like I think that, you know, if people are afraid of this concept of, oh my God, you know, like I have to create something. Yes, you're creating, but you know, you're always creating every single second that you're alive. That's what agency is. That literally is what agency is. You're, you decide what you're going to create. And so it's like, when you're just being you, I consider like wearing your heart on your sleeve, but literally not just on your sleeve, on your skin, like on your wrists, like for the world to see so that your insides match your outside, you know, however that would be. When you walk around the world and things are aligned in that way, then suddenly like everything's different. And, you know, 
then all of a sudden, like when I was mentioning that, you know, I keep asking each person that I interview, like about their unique experience. And it turns out that there's this underlying fundamental human experience. So the more unique, the more you, you are, the more of this shared humanity comes out, you know, but that only happens, I think, when there's more and more people being 100% heart on skin. You know, to me, that's ultimate glamour magic because that is literally you having agency, you creating you, you know, you creating despite other people's glamour magic, other people's Madison Avenue, propaganda, government, whoever, people in power right now, gatekeepers, their glamour magic is being used on you. Like, don't think that other, you know, that you are not affected by glamour magic and, oh, glamour magic is one side. No, no, no. Glamour magic is contextual. The environment works on you, you work on the environment. There is glamour magic being worked on you 24-7 from the time you're born. So if you're just like, oh, glamour magic is like beneath me, I don't need it. I'm just like, girl, you just bought that because of what that ad told you to do. You just believe that on the news because what the news, news agency told you on that YouTube video you probably watched or on Facebook or on Twitter. So don't think you're above it all. You are in the middle of it. You are basically like a piece of gristle or meat in the soup of glamour magic. So then it's sort of like, do you want to be that? Or do you want to be the chef creating the soup? Absolutely. It's real in the end, for me, it all comes down to harnessing your consciousness. And so uh, it, it's really, truly inhabiting this this space that you are are you're in you're part of and um and 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 self-empowering yourself it's again it's that it's a major tool and the more you use it you become more conscious the more conscious you become who knows where that load that road leads it's like in a dream the same theory applies the more you start realizing you're dreaming within the dream, the more you start to awaken within the dream. Mm -hmm. And and that is, I mean, I think that's in the end, one of the greater goals is it, 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 at the bottom line, that is a state of agency, inhabiting your experience. That I 110% a thousand percent agree with that. And one of the things that I really am drawn to about magic is the sense that you do have a sense of agency and a way to gracefully, if you do it in a way that is graceful, you can do it in a way that's not graceful. You can do it in a way that's you know dominating and douchey and assholey or ineffective and whiny or whatever. But if you choose to do it gracefully, well, let's talk about how do you do that gracefully. You know, let's talk about some practical steps. One of the first ways to go through life gracefully and to use magic gracefully, to do anything gracefully, is to know yourself. And once you know yourself, and knowing yourself means you don't wash over and you know, whitewash and um, spiritually bypass who you are. There's, you know, I just told a story about how I was doing like revenge magic revenge love magic that's considered super small and super petty but that's a part of all of us you know mother Teresa, who by the way wasn't such a great saintly character you know fyi 
you know? Oh yeah, that's to come out. <laughs> oh my God, what a, what a mess. You know, <laughs> Was she having sex parties like uh, Martin Luther King? Well, I mean, I hope she That just came out too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Martin Luther King, you know, just everybody. There's the shadow side to us and dreams can be very helpful in integrating, not rejecting, not judging, but integrating that part of us. And, you know, like once you integrate the shadowy side um, into who you are, and instead of judging it, you just see it as, oh, okay. Just like when I felt that peace and that dream about death, it was also the feeling of melancholy. Ah, dark side, the light side. Wait a second. But it's all this, the same thing, you know? There's no inferior superior. And, you know, like once, once you do that, you know, and once you know yourself, then, and this takes time, this takes time and it, you constantly are going to improve if you have that growth mindset. Growth mindset being tomorrow I can do a little bit more of what I wanted to do. I'm not fixed. I'm, it's not fatalistic. It's not faded. You know, when you have that growth mindset and you're like, okay, I did magic or I went to a therapist, or I did this or that. You know, it's going to take some time, and then you're going to fuck up. But then you get to know yourself. And a lot of people, I think they do magic not to know themselves, but to control other people or to control situations. And the thing is, sometimes you need to do that. You need to be small and petty and an asshole and a douche first, so that you can get to integrate that. You get to experience the shadow side, immerse yourself, lean into that. Then you get to know yourself a little bit more, a little bit more. And when you get to know yourself a little bit more, a little bit more, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to be brave. What is bravery? Bravery is basically putting yourself in a situation where you might be shamed because you are being you. You know, Brene Brown, she has this viral TED talk. And she's talking about vulnerability. And she's done a lot of other talks. And I think that there's this audio book which is actually a seminar she did. And she's talking about how shame is the most destructive human emotion that there is. Um, and shame is what often drives people into addictive behavior, into suicide, um, just horrible things. And shame basically is us lacking courage. Courage being the ability to talk about our story, who we are, with our full heart. Cur being French for heart or Latin um, for heart. So once you are able to have courage, once you are able to know yourself and then to tell the story of who you are with your full heart, the pettiness, the smallness, the, the, the grace, the sweetness, the bitterness, all of that, the full range of it, once you're able to actually express that and to put it out into the world and wear it on your skin, then, then life, then magic, then everything happens with grace. Grace doesn't mean necessarily easy. It doesn't mean necessarily always cute or even what people might consider beautiful. What is beautiful anyway? What we're looking for is grace. When things happen with this feeling, you know, there's this feeling of grace too. Literally graceful physically, like a ballerina, like a dancer, but there's also grace as in what? I guess people would say God gave you the grace of God. 
you mix those two together. There's that feeling inside of your embodied self moving through the world, being like, ah, okay, ah, okay. That feeling of, okay, all right, yeah, all right. And it could be not an ideal situation, but you're just like, all right. And then the next step, and it unfolds because you react to that context. You react to that situation with 100% yourself with that courage, right? And then all of a sudden, because you're reacting to the environment and it acts upon you as well, then things unfold a little bit differently. You do magic again. And this time, the magic, you're like, oh, I learned from last time. But you do it. You, you do it because you're embodied. You use the materials because just thinking about magic doesn't work as well as actually doing it physically. And then magic works maybe a little bit better, maybe not as well. Maybe for an entire year, two years, nothing happens with your magic. Broder Ashton Chazan talked about how his scryer, I forget his scryer's name, Ben Stefan, I think, for an entire year, he didn't have any results. And he was on the verge of tears and giving up, but he never did. And then finally, he, he finally got results. And because of that, he's now a master scryer. And, you know, Frater Chassan was talking about how much he respects that. And part of that journey was to go through the, the shadow of the valley of death, you know, to have no results, to have like a shitty this or a shitty that. But again, still being true to what drives you. You know, the Aleister Crowley concept of true will. What is your true will? Once you find that and you move towards that and you're 100% being courageous and talking about that, about who you are, whether it's through YouTube, through a blog, to, you know, a person you love, whatever, you know, in your dreams, taking your dreams and putting it into your life. Then your life, it moves with this almost like musical grace, this balletic grace. And then little by little, before you know it, you get to the end of that roller coaster ride. And then when you get off, I'm told, I haven't experienced this, but I can guess that this is right because of what I experienced in my dream. That when you get to the end of the roller coaster ride, then you're like, wait a second, I want to go back on. And then you like try to get back on this ride. Like even if it was a shitty ride, you're just like, ah, I still want to go back on this ride. And so that to me is what living gracefully is what it means. Wow, I find that incredibly empowering. And what a beautiful way uh, it's come full circle from the beginning of this chat. Uh, it, it just kind of left me speechless there for a minute, Jawan. It's thank you for that. That's all I have on that is thank you for that. I was wondering yeah. if we have, and I'm, gl I'm so glad you're presenting this to the greater public and that this is a conversation that's being heard now as well. It, it's so important. It's fundamental. So I'm wondering if we have any questions in the chat. I don't participate in the chat when we're talking because I like to focus on. Got one question from Oswald. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of the 2016 scandal of the South Korean president following the influence of the Choi Tae-min cult? Taimin? Taimin? Uh, okay, so uh, just a little background. Korea elected its first female president, um, and she's actually the daughter of a president that we had in the 70s. And she was basically impeached. Well, she was impeached, and, you know, the entire country kicked her out. 
you know, um, and part of her downfall was she was connected to a cult, but also there was a shaman. What a lot of people don't realize is that um, Korean and a lot of Asian societies that are not communist and communist societies, like any sort of like spiritual work, fortune telling is punishable by death as what happened in North Korea recently. They took like three shamans and they publicly executed these three women. Oh, that's horrible. It really is. And it was like a big spectacle. They wanted to make an example out of these three women. But in South Korea, it's obviously not a communist country. And so um, now there's a resurgence. There always has been people like going to shamans and asking for fortunes and stuff. And it's kind of like how Ronald Reagan, like Nancy Reagan, had like a, an astrologer on staff, you know? Like, and it was like a big deal, but nobody really talked about it. But in Korean society, not that it's hidden, but it's, it's kind of like an everyday sort of thing. Like people aren't constantly talking about it, but, you know, everybody goes visits a shaman and, and that's what the Korean um, president, she did. But I think that she took the, the shaman's advice too, too much or something like that. Like the shaman was considered almost like a Rasputin. And that was also considered sort of like, oh my God, you know, she's so unfit to be a president. Let's impeach her. So what do I think of it? Um, I really don't have much of an opinion about it. I think though that there is no doubt in my mind that um, it was groundbreaking that there was a Korean president in South Korea before there was a, there's, you know, there's never been a, a female president in America. So I think there's that. I wonder how much misogyny played into it. Um, I also wonder how much anti-shaman or like strong Christian um, judgments played into it because a lot of the Korean elite, they were educated in um, Christian college. Like in Korea, it was Christian missionaries who founded a lot of the colleges. So, you know, if you are the elite and you've gone to some of these top schools, a lot of it's Christian education. What started out as Christian education. So I wonder how much of that also comes into play. So what's the deal with Dennis Rodman? Dennis Rodman You know what? I don't know. I think Dennis Rodman just enjoys being like, you know, that 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 asshole. I think he just enjoys that role. Well who doesn't? Um, good point. Yeah. And he can get away with it. So you know. <laughs> But the thing is, I know that Kim Jong-un, he was actually educated outside of North Korea. I think he went to like a boarding school in Switzerland or something like that. I thought he went to Oxford or something. Or, yeah, you know, like what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, not only is Kim Jong-un totally aware of what's going on in the world and was educated in the West, a lot of North Koreans, they know what's going on. I mean, there's bootleg pirated um South Korean TV shows are super popular in China. So it's an easy sort of like from China to North Korea. Um, so people are watching South Korean TV shows. They know what's going on. They know that Kim Jong-un and the North Korean government is full of shit. Can they talk about it? No, but they know that. All right, but are they, well, I don't know. I don't know, right? But I, I suspect that a lot of what we hear is not true. What's, what's reported. It's, it, it's but, possible, yes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's even like, a, for example, like Korean, South Korean cosmetics are, you know, anybody who knows anything about the beauty world, the 12-step like skincare thing that South Korea basically um, standardized, like it's, South Korean cosmetics are huge. 
and they're in huge demand in North Korea and a lot of, um, again, soft power, you know, glamour magic, glamour power. Um, North Koreans are willing to basically risk their lives like smuggling South Korean cosmetics. Uh, you know, people living in probably one of the worst off countries in the world because the human desire to have glamour in their life is so intense, you know, that even people in North Korea, you know, men and women are willing to risk their lives and also to part with their hard earned money and not a lot of money that they have to have this glamour in their life. So you can almost see cosmetics as a talisman in a lot of ways mm. to have that South Korean talisman in North Korean hands and to experience that. Oh, I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah, it was Switzerland. Hmm. So, yeah, that's my that's my little spiel that I gave um, at the 2019 uh, Magical Women Conference. And I had actually, um, I was supposed to talk about my personal experience as a glamour practitioner, but literally the day before, I decided to totally change, well, not totally, but change veer into slightly different territory and uh i realized that it wasn't like talking about me wasn't what i was supposed to talk about i was going to talk about something bigger and the talk was also um we not only talked about korea and the sort of like institutionalized glamour magic but how we as individual witches can use lessons from like reverse engineer like what south korea did and use it in our personal practices that's what it really comes down to. Why stop at North Korea's magic? Hey, North Korea, like, uh, they, Kim Jong-un must have some sort of magic, you know? Like, somehow the regime is still standing. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, There's something, he's got something going on. It's fear. He controls the people through fear. Not only through fear, but also, you know, there's um, a mountain range in South Korea or in Korea, the Korean Peninsula, and it's considered the backbone of Korea. And I think it's on the east coast of Korea. It's like the backbone of the dragon. And the holiest mountain in this range is now in North Korea. Like when there was that north and south divide, the DMZ zone and all that, it's like literally breaking the back of the dragon, you know. And mountains are super holy in Korea because the country is like 70% mountain. Mm -hmm. The holiest mountain is in North Korea. And even though the North Korean government is atheist and they're just like totally, maybe executed the fortune tellers, the origin story of um, Kim Il-sung, who is the founder of North Korea, is like basically him. I think he like shot like a couple of... Um, if it was Americans or whatever on that mountain, like he was a brave soldier and he killed like the enemy, like on that mountain. And then Kim Jong-il, who is Kim Jong-un's father, um, the guy who with the crazy perm and the glasses and the jumpsuit, he was supposedly born on, I think it's called Pektu San. San means mountain. So he was born on Pektu Mountain. You know, of course he wasn't, but you know, that's the legend. Sure. And then Kim Jong-un. The myth. Yeah, the myth. You know, and it doesn't matter mountain. if it's true or not, it's believed. That's the propaganda, yeah. And you know that that again is sort of like drawing like a like a Jesus sort of parallel for them. And it is a type of magic that they do. I mean, I always say the same mentality that drives the North Koreans to keep with that regime is the same mentality that created K-pop 
and created like the, it's called a Hallyu wave. Hallyu wave is what people call like when Korean entertainment became dominant in Asia. So it's that same mentality, the same sort of almost like obsession with this institutionalized glamour magic. That it's the same thing, Kim Jong-un, BTS. I mean, there's this fundamental sort of mechanics technology working right there that is being employed maybe by the entire country, North and South. Yeah, just wait till 5G gets here. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> then you're going to start seeing some real shit. <laughs> I got nothing else. This has been a great pleasure, really enjoyable. Uh, and I'm in gratitude for you gracing us, oh, <laughs> right? You totally graced us oh, with goodness. this wonderful chat and how oh. it spiraled in and out. I got another question. Just kidding. Oh. What's your favorite or least favorite K-pop band? Oh, well, I just recorded a video about BTS, and I think everybody loves BTS. I don't and... love BTS. Oh, well, you will once you watch all the videos. No. <laughs> See, this is the mind control you're just talking about. Or, I'm sorry, magic. Guys, in the comment below, like, please list a video for Jerry to watch. Okay. So, um... I saw the bad <laughs> lip reading of one of their videos. That was pretty funny. Well, so, something my spaghetti. That... <laughs> I think that uh, somebody needs to recommend like a BTS video for Jerry. I swear to you. Like every single like reaction video that I've seen with a bunch of dudes being like, I don't care about BTS. I'm not into BTS. And then they watch a video. They're like, wait a second. I really like BTS. So guys in the comments below, what BTS video should Jerry watch? I recommend that you start with um, the dance practice for fire. And then you'll be like, wow, these guys are legit. <laughs> I, I, will, I will think about it. Yay. So they're my favorite. My least favorite? Oh, it's hard to say. Um, it, was a, it was an either or. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think in general, like the system of creating K-pop bands, it's so it's so state of the art. Like it's there's no other way to define it. It's state of the art. It's really difficult to have a not great K-pop band. They can all dance. They can all sing live while dancing. And they have a lot of media training. So they do this thing called fan service. And fan services, they know how to treat their fans. Like they know how to really turn up the glamour magic. Schmooze. Schmooze and to, you know, spend hours. They're like, they're taught from day one. You basically worship your fans. Like the fans, like in the West, people worship Justin Bieber, Madonna, One Direction, whatever. But in Korea, you have to give service to the fans. You know, you have to be the one who's like sitting there for hours upon hours, signing every single thing, you know, and everything that you do has to be for the fans. And so it's very hard to find a unlikable K-pop band. Understandable. Are they all like clones of, of two people or something? Sometimes they <laughs> can be. But the thing is, is that the only time that people hate or dislike uh, K-pop bands is because you know they're jealous or they're like my band is better than your band so the they're called antis or antis you know antis so like a-n-t-i so you're anti if you're into bts you're probably anti exo which is another huge band like in a boy band in korea um, so it's like a sports team 
it basically it basically which so, is a giant energy harvesting so i could totally see that yeah so there you go like um that basically it, it's a sport it's a sport yeah <laughs> and they encourage their fans to dislike the other one i get it well they don't d- encourage it but in a way they kind of do because right. it's like you know they they officially say oh you know no hate you know but ultimately what you're trying to do is you know it's such a competitive society in korea there's a very narrow definition of what success looks like um so there's only there's like no like fifth place you know in korea there's like first place and then there's like oh you're a loser if you're second and third second place is a first class loser first place loser i mean yeah i mean the entire like tiger mom culture that People talk about in America. Oh my God! You know she's such a tiger mom. I mean, tiger. There is no. Wait, wait, tiger I never mom. heard that. What does that mean? Oh, so tiger moms. I think Amy Chua. I don't know how to say her last name, but she's a professor. I think at Harvard or Yale. But she wrote a, a book called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Moms or something like that. And basically, it's a manual, a parenting manual, saying Asian kids do great in life. You know, are successful because basically. We as mothers were tiger moms. We expect nothing but A pluses. Them to win every single piano competition, they have to do you know like so many different activities and excel at them. Uh, oh, these oh, are the reasons today's society is so fucked up. These people. There you go. Mm. Korea, uh, South Korea has. Oh, I mean, that's the glamour, rough. Yeah, the glamour magic is on point in South Korea, but the shadow side to that is Korea has, I think, the highest suicide rate in the world because the. You know, if you don't graduate from the top school in, in Korea and you don't get a job with Samsung or LG, you're a loser. Or Hawaii. So, yeah. <laughs> or if, or actually, you know, Korea also is known for being a plastic surgery hub mm. in Asia. Um, a lot of it is, and there's a certain look called the Gangnam face. And maybe you've heard of Gangnam style, that song by Sai, that was really popular a couple of years ago. Gangnam is sort of the upscale area of Seoul, Korea. And Gangnam face is when you see, and if you go on Instagram, you can see tons of girls who maybe if they don't have the surgery, they actually have apps to look like you had like that surgery. It's like Wait, that. what's Instagram? I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. But uh, it's that super pointy chin, that super pointy nose. You look like a Japanese anime come to life. And that's kind oh, of- I no. have noticed that uh, trending lately. Uh, and that's considered um, to be the epitome, you know, yes, of, of beauty. So yeah, so if you're not if you're not beautiful, if you're not super successful, then you're a loser. You might as well kill yourself. So and that's a general Asian thing, though. I think. I think it is to, um, to, to look perfect. And I, I think I Koreans take it way further because of the Neo Confucian culture. So in Neo Confucianism, yeah, your status, your social class was dictated by what you wore. So um, in China now, it's it's dictated by a score they keep oh yeah that social media <laughs> thing mm-hmm. are you social media worthy or whatever right oh it's terrible they have it here All too they it. just don't tell you no it's but it's rolling out more and more here it's surfacing well here i think what you have is cloud right it's that je ne sais quoi of whether or not you know you're 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 cool on social media you have clout not necessarily like how many followers but you have clout influence influence exactly mm. So um, it's, but I mean, I guess one of the things that I've read is that the system, the 
social media like grading system that they have in China that it's not as harsh as maybe we've read about in the I don't know. Again, I don't want to believe, I don't believe that. I'm not sure, but truly like um that also could be maybe a shadow side to glamour magic. It's like people buying Instagram followers, like creating like, you know, like in Russia you can hire a private jet for like a photo shoot and post pictures. Do that here too. Do that here as well. You could do anything here. I'm sure you could do more shit here than you can in Russia. Well, I wouldn't say that. I have no idea, but I mean depending on your photoshop skills you can like do whatever the fuck you want i, mean, <laughs> I right, meant right? if you had money okay. you could do stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah so i, I got mean, i got photoshop skills oh no oh, i might i might hit you up <laughs> you know you got mad so, skills i make all the uh, art for cruising with steak for, for the copies that i post on my channel <laughs> nice no i mean like seriously like that is i mean is that like that is glamour magic that is ultimate glamour magic in a lot of ways to be able to instantly photoshop something like you, to change your eye color to change your looks to change literally everything about you including where you're even at yes that is a type of glamour magic but again to me that's very <laughs> i, I want to call it like old school old-fashioned glamour it's like glamour magic 1.0 I, I would call it new because it's digital versus analog and i think it's I'll, I'll... digital but it's the same sort of feeling of like the manipulation that madmen sort of mentality of let's manipulate let's create an image yes and i would go so far as to say that digital magic in that manner only can affect people digitally like you're not going to get analog magic results through a digital magic thing Perhaps. That's, Perhaps. that's my thought right now. So, of course, that's how my life goes. Well, you know, there's a lot of um, millennial witches. I don't know if it's a lot, but there are millennial witches who use technology um, to, to do their magic. They use their phones. They use social media to do magic. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an entirely exciting new uh, generation of witches that are doing magic in ways that are so, like, outside the box. And it's totally in line with their environment with their life i think apple gets a 10 percent cut of all energy harvested <laughs> that agricore is just out of control it is out of control <laughs> <laughs> fuck you steve jobs look what you've done yeah i love Barry. all right let's wrap this shit up thank you so much for coming on the show it's been really an excellent conversation thank you <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank you both. Um, I'm I'm so glad that I was able to talk about these dreams, and also the more I talk about it, the more refined these ideas become. So who knows? Maybe in a year, I'll say stuff that's completely different from what I'm saying right now. But guys, it's okay to change. Absolutely. Oh yeah, daily to where, even. To where you're really. at now, it's all that matters. Because yep. now is all there is. So there we go. And also, I wanted to ask you if you had anything to plug, or you wanted to talk about, you know, for people coming up that you're going to be having you know, blah, 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 blah. You know. right <laughs> uh well plug, you know plug I, time there you go yeah i i did some really exciting in-person interviews in london um they're going to come in july they include interviews with bill hine jake stratton kent um alkistis and peter gray from um scarlet imprint um i also did tours of the three biggest i was told the three only occult bookstores in London, um, Atlantis, Treadwells, and Watkins. Um, Watkins is killer. Yeah, it was it was gnarly. 
And, you know, I also have interviews coming up with Cindy Brennan, um, Sabrina Scott, with uh, Jeffrey Kotick. Um, he's an incredible um, scholar and translator of ancient Chinese and Japanese texts. And he does like horoscopy. I can never say that word. Horoscopy. Horoscopy. So like ancient horoscopy from the East. Incredible scholar. Horoscopy. Horoscopy. <laughs> have you had Skinner on yet, Dr. Skinner? No, I haven't. Um, actually, he was in Bali um, over Christmas, but unfortunately, um, we weren't able to connect at that point. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people on my wish list. For, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. And if they only answered their emails. Yeah, I mean, it's, I totally understand um, as my channel grows and, um, you know, there's so many people who I would love to talk to and answer back to, but it's like literally like just the emails and the messages that I'm getting, it's starting to get at a volume that's difficult for me to do that plus the video editing. So I apologize like to everybody who I haven't been able to answer back to, you know. Your girl is like working hard to put out more and more videos. Yeah. No sorries. She'll get to you when she gets to you. Yeah. But, you know, it's sort of like, oh, you know, like, because I understand when I first started my YouTube channel, you know, like sometimes I would email people and I wouldn't hear back. Rejection is a part of life. And, you know, it's, uh, and I'm saying, you know, please don't take it personally because I've been in your shoes and I totally understand how it feels not to get a response. Oh, so, I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> it's their loss if you ask me. Uh, I, I like your attitude, Jerry. Like it. Like it's very it. bad. I have a bad attitude. But anyway, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> uh, thank you again so much. Thank you, Nish. Thank you, audience. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel if you have not, because we want to try and get over a thousand subscribers. Get some super chats going. That would be very yeah. cool. But thank other you. than that, that's it for me. Next week we have. Uh, Jessica Morocco, Jessica Ariel Morocco, psychic, channeler, medium, all kinds of cool stuff. Should be a great show. And she, she talks to aliens. Unlike, unlike you. <laughs> kidding, like me, I wish I could. You can. You just believe you can't. Damn. Jerry just told me. He just told me. <laughs> he just pointed that out. <laughs> <laughs> he called me that. Anyway. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thanks Thank a lot. You. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Perfect.